coming. And uh, we're going to pray for Pastor John. He's going to lead us in our study today. Father God, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to use our gifts and talents. And I know John has a gift and a talent for teaching. And I just pray that you bless him today as he uh, takes us in through God's word and, and, and breaks it in a way that we can consume it well and understand it. But Lord, let it not just be a lesson in your word. May it be something that changes us, that affects what we do as we go out into this world. Uh, just, just use him, Father God, and bless him. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's get our Bibles out. So, have you ever heard the phrase, let go and let God? I bet if I went around this room, we'd come up with probably 10 different definitions for that phrase. Uh, Far too often, though, it is used to imply that if you say this mantra or if you live this mantra, it will become some sort of a key to a spiritual breakthrough. Uh, First of all, that's unbiblical. Because to infer that somehow you can let go and let God in order to level up as a Christian, it suggests that if you were a stronger Christian, then you won't have to face these trials and troubles. That's, that's totally untrue. Because even Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So, so no, let go and let God is not a way to level up. Rather, it should, or originally it came to mean, that if you let go of your way of doing things and let God take control of your life. Let go of the the things that we want to do, that our desires, and let God take control. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, C.S. Lewis said it best this way. He said, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we're trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep our personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time, be good. He says, um, the Christian way is different. It's harder, and yet it's easier. Christ would say to us, give me all. I don't want just so much of your time, so much of your money, and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it, Christ would say. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or there. I want to chop down the whole tree. I don't want to drill the tooth or or crown it or stop it, but have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires, those that you think may be innocent as well as the ones you know to be wicked, the whole outfit, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, Christ says, I will give you myself. And then later, Lewis goes on to say, in this place of terrible, joyful surrender, it's in this place of terrible, joyful surrender that you are truly yielded to God. The whole idea of being a Christian is that we are yielded and surrendered to God, right? Uh, When we pray that prayer, Lord, save me, Lord, Be my Lord and Master. That term Lord and Master mean that we're yielding our lives to Him. God doesn't want us to let go and let God some of the time or when times are tough. God wants us to be totally surrendered to Him so that He is able to work in and through us. We cannot love as Jesus commanded unless we have surrendered our lives to God. We will not fully exhibit the fruits of the Spirit unless we are totally surrendered to Him. 
Because when we are only partially surrendering, there's still that part that is unloving, impatient, unkind, angry, jealous, envious, and so on that always rears its ugly head, right? Total surrender is what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross to follow me. Now, I believe that as Christians, myself included, it would do us well to remember what it cost God to save us and what he saved us from. Because if, if we're born again, then everything in this life, everything we do should be transformed by that salvation. Amen? God doesn't want half measures or just a portion. He wants all of us. As we studied last week, God's plan for us, His will for our lives, is to have the same mindset as Christ, living a life of total obedience and surrender to the Father. Which brings us to our passage today. This morning, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, you will need one, because we are studying the Bible this morning. Uh, there are bookshelves on each outside wall. If you need a Bible, go grab one. Uh, but we were gonna, we're going to study God's Word this morning. These are not my words. You can hold me accountable after service if I said something wrong. But this is God's Word. And we're going to hold God's Word uh, as the standard this morning. So... So verse 12, get my notes a little bit organized here. Uh, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul starts out, therefore. Last week we studied that Paul encouraged this church that they should have the same mindset as Christ, who was obedient to God the Father, even to the point of death. This is what Paul expects of all Christians. This is the expectation Paul sets forth in every church, to have the same mindset as Christ, to be obedient to Christ. And he tells this church, therefore, you've always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now sometimes, when we read that, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it causes a little trembling. How many of you have ever struggled with this verse? I did when I was younger. I was like, oh, what, what am I supposed, I'm supposed to be working something. What am I supposed to do? Now, now, Paul didn't say work out your salvation as in work for your salvation. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is writing to this church. He says, therefore, as you've always always obeyed, continue. So we got to look at that in the context of that. Continue. He commends them for their obedience, but he doesn't stop there. Their life isn't over. He says obedience isn't something we obtain and then move on to some other virtue. Rather, we're to continue this obedience. So right there we know that Paul's not talking about working for our salvation. Rather, he says work out, or more specifically, continue to work out your salvation. And, and he's saying, work it out as in, put forth a real effort to make your salvation real in your life. Work out in order to see salvation take over every aspect of your life. The phrase, work out your salvation. I, I kind of think of it like this. 
you're not going to have a toned, buff body unless you go to the gym and work on it, right? You're not going to learn a new skill unless you work on it. Those of us that are married know this, that marriage takes work. We don't work for it, but we work on it. We work it it out. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about working it out um, as, as if we're working our body, as if we're conditioning our body for something. That's what he's talking about. Put your faith to action in your life. Amen? We cannot be a true follower of Christ if we don't adhere to his teachings. That's what a follower of Christ means. This is what Paul meant when he says, work out your salvation. He says, put forth a genuine effort to follow and obey Christ as God did, God as Christ did. And then he adds with fear and trembling. Not fear in a sense of terror or of God's impending judgment. For, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, as we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. But rather, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear. It's a reverence. It's a, we should be reverent of God. This trembling, that we should be in awe of God. This is how we're to work out our salvation. Have a fear of failing to work it out would be more like it. I, I don't want to get before God and be like, I did not live my life for you. I'm sorry. That would, that would not go well, I don't think. I, don't, I, I want to stand before God like, I, there's a song that Phil Wickham sings, and he's like, one day we will be standing shoulder to shoulder with the saints of old. And I'm like, standing shoulder to shoulder. No, I'll probably be like in the back for my little part. You know, Paul's going to be up front. But, but no, I want to hear, good job, well done, my faithful servant. And that's what that fear and trembling will cause. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The full life that Jesus offers us is when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You see, nothing done for God in this life is meaningless. Only that which was done apart from God or or for self will be vain and meaningless. The, uh, The psalmist says that everything is vanity that's not done for God. Here's the deal. If you respect God, if you fear God, you will obey Him. Or as Jesus put it, if you love me, you will obey my commands. God showed us His grace when He saved us. And that should cause some awe and reverence in our lives. And Paul's saying, keep that awe, keep that reverence that you first had when you first got saved, when you first realized what God did for you. Keep that. Continue that. that. See, while we were enemies of God, Jesus went to the cross for us to make us right with God, to bring us peace with God. And what does God require of us? He requires that we fear the Lord our God, to live in a way that pleases Him, and to love Him and serve Him with our heart and soul. We must always obey the Lord's commands because they're for our own good. Moses tells the children of Israel in in Deuteronomy. 
God's commands, God's commandments, his decrees are for our own good. If God saved us from sinfulness, then he knows what's for our own good. We need to trust him in that. We need to learn to trust him. In light of God's goodness, his grace, his mercy on us, why wouldn't we desire to work out our salvation? This is a question I had to ask myself this week. Why, after everything, I've, after everything God has done for me, why wouldn't I want to respond this way? What is causing me to not respond this way? If salvation is God's best for me, then why would I think that total surrender is not God's best for me? Why would I think that complete obedience is not God's best for me? It is. God is the only one who will ever be looking out for my good. I've got friends and family that look out for my good, but not the way God does. God is the only one who has ever loved me the way that he loves me. I've got a wife and children. They love me. My family loves me, but not the way God loves me. He sent his son to die on a cross for me. While I was his enemy, he wanted to have peace with me. Doesn't the God that would do that for us deserve obedience and fear and trembling? I mean, we still try to please those who put us down. We still have those people in our lives that we cower to and we, you know, we have a mean boss or something. We might even still respect a little or something, you know. But what have they ever done for us? Nothing like what God has done for us. And yet, God deserves our respect. He deserves it so much more than anybody in this world. So what keeps us from total submission? It's hard, isn't it? Well, that's why Paul goes on to write verse 13. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. For it is God who works in you. Paul says, work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. You see, our work is to help accomplish or to bring about. That's what the word work stands for, to help accomplish or bring about. But God's work, that word means to implement. The the phrase work in actually means to put one's capabilities into operation and to make effective. God works in us to give us the desires to accomplish and the power to carry out the very purposes that we were created for. You see, God created you and me for a purpose. God created us to be a part of his church, to be somebody who brings him glory. And so he works in us the desires to do that. He he works in us to carry out the very thing we were created to be, right? Because God works, when, we, when our work is empowered by God's work, then our work is an expression of God's work. All of our effort is vain unless it is an expression of God's work. God is working in us to bring about those desires for him, those desires to do his will, those desires to be obedient to him. God works that in us. We, we can't create that in ourselves, can we? I can't wake up tomorrow morning and be like, okay, I'm going to study my Bible from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., and then I'm going to obey God from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., then I'm going to have lunch, and then I'm going to go serve the homeless. I won't get through half the day. 
I'll be like, oh, I skipped breakfast. I need breakfast. Or something like that. We can't do that. that. That's not a natural desire of ours. But God creates that desire in us to do his good purposes. Amen? And when we are working out our salvation, God is working in us to will and to act or to desire and to function in the capacity he has created for us to fulfill his purposes. Now, how does this happen practically? Well, Jesus had the answer. I'm going to tell you right now, John 15 is probably my favorite chapter, so I do quote it a lot when I preach. But Jesus in John chapter 15 tells us, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's the key. Apart from God, we can do nothing. It is God who works in us. <coughs> Our job is to allow him to do that work. God is working us. He prunes us so that we bear more fruit for him. Jesus said, you are the branch connected to a vine, created to bear fruit. The only way to bear fruit is to remain connected to the vine, right? Just as the vine supplies all that the branch needs to bear fruit, so God works in us to fulfill his good purpose, to supply all we need to bear good fruit. God will work in us the desires to do all that he has created to do as long as we remain obedient and submitted to him. That's our part. Remain obedient and submitted to God. So what are these things that we're created to do? There's got to be some specifics, right? Well, first of all, Paul starts out with what we were not created to do. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything this is hard. Do everything without grumbling or arguing or without complaint and debate. This word, do everything, this phrase, infers that we should also work out our salvation in every aspect of our life. The opposite of do everything without, without grumbling and arguing is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul, you, <coughs> excuse me, Paul used the same wording here to tell the Corinthian church, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Every activity in our life should be done for the glory of God. This is what we were created for. For the glory of God, it is God's good purposes for our lives. God's purpose, God's will for your life is to bring Him glory. The whole reason why He saved us was for His glory. Sinners opposing him, in opposition to him. And he reaches out and he saves them to show his glory. It is likely, though, that some of the believers in Philippi were grumbling and arguing. It's probable that some were complaining about their own suffering here. You know, it's hard to suffer, isn't it? It's not fun. Suffering is not easy. We've all been there. The problem is, though, that these complaints, the reason why this is listed is these complaints 
are either directly or indirectly aimed at God. And it speaks of a lack of faith in us. Which is why he reminds them to continue. Don't get focused on what you're grumbling and arguing about. Focus on continuing. You see, when we get our eyes off Jesus, we get our eyes on the problems, our problems become bigger than God, right? I did not have a cough until I woke up this morning. I don't know what it is. But our problems, when we get our eyes focused on our problems, they become bigger than God in our eyes. But when we get our eyes focused on God, our problems become smaller. And I know a lot of us have dealt with a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. And it seems like, how can this be good? Paul says, count it joy when you go through that, because that's working out your faith in you. Another way we can work out our faith is to faithfully go through them problems, faithfully continue to look to God and be obedient to God. You want to know what to do when you're in a problem? Continue to obey God. Continue to remain obedient to God. Continue to follow Him with fear and trembling, or reverence and, and trembling. So it's likely that some of these believers were, were going through this. That's probably why Paul added it here. But here's the ultimate issue. When there's grumbling and complaining, God is not glorified. <clears throat> when there's arguing and debate, the church is not unified, and God is not glorified. When onlookers see gl- grumbling and arguing and complaining that in the church, we as Christians lose our witness. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. But if you lose your saltiness, how, how are you able to season? How can you become salty again? You're no good for anything. You're the light of the world, Jesus said. A city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone. This is what we're called to do. Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If the world sees hopelessness and division in us, then what do we have to offer? If we don't exhibit the hope that we have in God, the unity that we have in God to a lost and dying world, what else do we have to offer them? This is why Paul found it necessary to continue writing. Because in verse 15, he goes on to say, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. (coughs) And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul says, do everything without grumbling and complaining so that you may become blameless and pure children of God in this warped and crooked generation or in this immoral and depraved world that God has called you out of. He wants you to be different than that. He saved us from our warped and crooked sins. And salvation is the hope that we have. The only other option is eternal punishment. 
and not only is salvation the only hope that we have, but it's the only hope we have to share with others who are a part of this warped and crooked generation. We are to be a light shining in the darkness. Paul says a child God should be different. Don't be like this world. Become blameless and pure. Oh, sorry. Or faultless and guiltless. James would tell us that pure worship of God is to keep oneself unstained and uncorrupted by this world. That is the pure worship of God. But then Paul continues, you will shine among them or among this warped and crooked generation like stars in the sky. What's interesting, and I find it funny when people are like, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions and stuff. Paul quotes a, prof- a prophecy from Daniel here. Daniel, some four or five hundred years before him, wrote in Daniel 12, when those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You see, Daniel prophesied that this would happen that we would be like stars shining in the sky. And Jesus said, this is my church, a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. And now Paul says that you are to be blameless and pure so that you fulfill this prophecy. We get the picture from the Old and New Testament as well as Jesus himself that God saved us to be a light, to illuminate the way to God for those who are lost and still part of this warped and crooked generation. We're to be like a lighthouse guiding the ships in a storm. You see, in Paul's day, they didn't have GPS. They had to, the, the sailors had to look to the stars to see where they were. And, and the Bible says that we are to be like those stars guiding people. Not, we can't guide people when we look like them. The only way we can guide people is to be set apart, to be different, to be obedient, to have the same mind as Christ. And so I believe what Paul would ask us, how can you be a light if you look like the darkness all around you? How can you turn many to righteousness when you're full of blame and impurities? You see, we must be different. We must be obedient. Christ saved us from that blame and that guilt and that shame so that we can be blameless and pure, so that we can be a light shining as the stars above. (coughs) But how can we be blameless and pure? We all have a sinful self. We're still alive here. We still have to deal with sin. Well, Paul says, as you hold firmly to the word of life. Who's the word of life? Jesus. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and in him was life. So as we hold firmly to Christ, or again, John 15, Jesus says, remain in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing. Apart from Jesus, we are nothing. We can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we are stuck in this warped and crooked generation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very clearly, Jesus claimed, I'm the only way to God. And in return for all Christ has done, 
and is doing and will do for us, the least that we can do is offer our lives as a willing sacrifice, a life of surrender and obedience to him. He'll work in us the desires to do his work. He'll work in us and transform us into blameless and pure beacons of light and draw others unto him if we hold firmly to the word of life, if we remain in him. That's the key, remaining in him. Because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And then Paul continues, as you become blameless and pure children of God, I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. See, Paul knew on the day that Christ returns, when when Paul would stand before his Savior, he would give an account of his ministry. And he says, I know that I can boast in you guys on that day because you guys are obedient. And you guys listen when, when I'm telling you what to do. Paul was not a do as I say, don't do as I do kind of guy. Paul was a follow my example. I've been there, I've done that, I've lived this out. He knew what it meant to obey and to continue to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. He knew what it meant to do everything without grumbling and complaining. And he knew what it meant to hold firmly to the word of life because this is how Paul lived his life. He was an example for these. But he continues in verse 17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, even if I suffer the ultimate sacrifice as a martyr, I won't resent that. That's not a problem for me. But rather I'm glad and rejoice, and you should rejoice with me as well. Paul responds to suffering, no matter how ultimate or extreme. He responds with rejoicing. Why? Because his sacrifice, his service was done for God. This one time in the book of Acts, we read that the apostles were teaching about Jesus and the religious leaders did not like this at all. And so they they were not happy with them. They called the apostles in and they had them flogged or beaten. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And it says the apostles left sad because they had been flogged. No, that's not what it says. I'm joking. It says that the, the apostles left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering and disgrace for Jesus' name. And then they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news. Why were they able to rejoice in suffering? Because, first of all, they felt counted worthy to suffer for God. And second, because they understood that no matter what happens in this life, God has allowed it or caused it to happen. You see, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. But be glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. When we suffer for God in this life, doing God's work, living for God, we can be glad, we can rejoice in that. I know easier said than done sometimes, but we can be glad, we can rejoice in that because we're associating or we're, we're partnering with Christ in his suffering. 
Elsewhere, Paul writes, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. For I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I know I learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Again, holding to that word of life. God saved us from so much. He offers us an abundant life. And He wants us to hold to Him. See, spiritual maturity is not more dependence on myself. Spiritual maturity is more dependence and reliance on God. And the more I learn that, the more I realize that, the more I have become reliant on God. The more I realize that this is true in my life. This is true. I've learned to be content because God will give me strength. Because I'm holding on to Him. I'm abiding with Him. Paul ends this section on a positive note by encouraging his friends to rejoice with him in suffering. You can rejoice with me. He says, I'm being poured out as an offering for God. I, Paul was glad about that. He was, he was like, this is the, the best service I could offer to God is to pour out my life as an offering. And you should be glad for me as that. And one day, when I pass off this earth, I pray that you'd be glad for me. Because to be absent from this body is to be present with my Lord. And I know that. And so if I serve him with my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole body, and my whole being on this earth, there's no fear of standing before him. There's no intrepidation or, or wonder, did I do enough? No, because I know I held on to God. I remained with Jesus. I served God. I'm being poured out as an offering. And I did everything for the glory of God. And that's what counts. God will give you strength to endure, even if the outcome means a sacrifice. God will give you the strength to endure. Just remain in Him and hold on to Him. But it wasn't just Paul and the apostles who lived this way. Paul now gives us two other examples of two young men that were with him. Uh, Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself may come soon. Paul says, I'm going to send you Timothy. He wanted to encourage this church in person, but he was not able to. So he says, I hope to send Timothy soon. I hope to come soon, but I hope to send Timothy soon. And then he adds, I have no one else like him. This is kind of sad, isn't it? Paul says, in my ministry, I have no one else like Timothy. I have no one else like him because everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What are the interests of Jesus Christ? Just questioning. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Part of this, total con- part of this concept of total submission to God means that we obey his command to love one another, which Timothy did. Paul commends him for that. 
And as we studied last week in verse 3 and 4, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of us, each of you to the interest of others. That's what the type of love that Christ was talking about, what he referred to as love your neighbor. It's looking out for the interest of others. When, when Christ calls us to love God and love one another, it's with the same love that God showed us we're to love God with and we're to love others with. According to Paul, Timothy exhibited this in showing genuine concern for the Philippians and for others. Because he says, because Paul says he looks out for the interest of Jesus Christ. But not only that, but Paul goes on to say about Timothy that he has proven himself as a servant in the work of the gospel. Or in other words, he's proven himself totally submitted to God by seeking the spiritual good of others. And he has adopted the same mindset as Jesus Christ. The proof was that he was totally submitted to God. It was shown by his love for one another. Can people see that we're submitted to God by our love for one another? There's, there's proof when we abide in God. You see, we can fake love for a while. We can fake Christianity for a while. We can fake a lot of things for a, lo- a while. But at some point, you can't fake it anymore. And the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives? Paul would say it needs to be evident in the lives of every believer. And then he talks about how Timothy exhibited this. Jesus said, you'll know my disciples by their love for one another. The older I get and the more I study the Bible, the more I realize that the key to everything in the Bible is love. God's love for us, and in return, our love for him and love for one another. That's the key to the the Bible. Because God loved me, I will obey him. Because God loves me, I will love other people. What other response could I have? Uh, Jesus once said, he is forgiven little, loves little. And so, yeah, we can fake it for a while. But that's why I started out by saying we would do well to think about what it costs God to forgive us and what he has forgiven us from. We would be good to keep that as a reminder in our, in our minds so that we remember. You, you see, I think the epidemic or the pandemic with, with the church in America specifically is that we don't remember what we've been saved from. And we don't have a high view of our sin. We, we think, oh, well, Jesus forgave me. You know, It wasn't that big of a deal. No, it was a big deal. I heard it before. A small view of sin will lead to a small view of God. And so we need to remember what we're saved from and what we've been saved through. And a lot of times we'll say, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they've wronged me or how they've hurt me. God could say the same of you and me. 
and yet he still forgave us. This was for me this week. I, I had a rough, Every time I teach, I, I have to learn the lesson before I teach it. And I had to remember, you know, God, what did you save me from? Well, I was a part of that crooked and warped generation. And you saved me from that. If I'm stepping on your toes, just know mine were stepped on first. So, but it would do well for us to remember what God has forgiven us from. But Paul doesn't just stop with Timothy. In verse 25, he adds in Epaphroditus. Verse 25, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, for he longs for you all and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, but me also, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Paul plans on sending Epaphroditus back to this church. They had sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul, to, to take care of Paul. And he's now sending, them, sending him back. And he calls him a brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, and a messenger. This is kind of a job description for Christians. As Christians, we're called to be united as brothers and sisters in the faith. We're called to be co-workers, working together to do what pleases God. We're called to be fellow soldiers because spreading the gospel is a spiritual task and we are in a spiritual battle over the lives and souls of those who are dying and going to hell. So we're, we're fellow soldiers. And finally, we are messengers. They're to take care of the needs of others and to share the good news of Jesus to a warped and crooked generation. Like Epaphroditus, we all have our part to do. We all have our job to do. Just as it was with these guys, it is God who works in us the power and the desire to do His work in the place where He chooses. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 writes about the church, just as one body through one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ and the church. Even though... even. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but many. God has placed the parts in the body, each one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all, part, all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. Now you are the body of Christ. Each of you has a part in it. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus were all doing their part in the body of Christ. Each had their own calling. Each were doing exactly what God called them to do, and God was working in them the very desire and power to do. You see, the church sent Epaphroditus because the whole church couldn't go. And if the whole church would have gone to see Paul, then who would have been left to minister back in Philippi? So we all can't do the same thing. Some are teachers, some are Bible students, some are um, Sunday school teachers, some are janitors. We all have a part to play in the body. And this was evident in these three guys. Just because Epaphroditus got ill, though, doesn't mean he wasn't where God wanted him. 
and doesn't mean he wasn't doing the work of God. He was sent by this church doing his part in the body of Christ. He got ill, yes, but God in his mercy healed him. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. That doesn't mean that we won't get ill. It doesn't mean we won't face hardship. It doesn't mean that just because we're doing what God has called us to do, we're not going to have trials and tribulation. Because remember, those are for our benefit. So as in verse 30, or in verse 30 we read, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that the church could not be to Paul. He risked his life. The, <clears throat> this, this phrase, risked his life, it stood out to me. It literally means exposing himself to danger. It only occurs at this spot in the New Testament. But elsewhere, it's used as a gambling term. We might say that he considered the risk worth it to be used by God. He placed his bet on God, went all in and threw his dice in. And remember, the almost impossible thing to do in this life is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes, all your fears, all your desires to Christ. It is when we are totally surrendered to him that he is able to work in us and through us, just as he did with these guys. We're no different than these guys. The only difference is living a life of total surrender to Christ. It's not bondage. What, what was bondage was the sin we were in. Living a life in service to Christ is not bondage. It's freedom. I know I started out with C.S. Lewis, but I, I found something else he said as fitting for a closing statement, or in my closing statements. He says, God's compulsion is our liberation. God's compulsions or God's drawing, God's desires, are they become our freedom. Freedom from the crooked and warped generation that we are in. Freedom from the sin that has brought us bondage. When we submit our lives to God, He gives us the desires in order to function as we were created to function. Everything else is bondage. You try to do things on your own, you'll find yourself in bondage. But remain in Jesus. Remain in me and I will remain in you is what Jesus said. That's what he calls us to. That what's true of them can be true of us. God has not changed. But total surrender is required. We were once slaves to sin. But we've been made free in Christ. Free to serve Him. Not out of obligation, but out of fear and trembling. That continue to work out your salvation is just a call to hold on to Christ, to remain in Christ, and to obey Christ. Amen? Let me pray as the band comes up. Dear Holy Father, Lord, may we submit to you as Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus did. Lord, may we submit to you and have the, the mind of Christ, as Paul calls this church to have. Lord, show us the freedom that is found in serving and following you.
Lord, reveal to us your will and your desires as we follow you. Lord, we don't want to do anything on our own. We want it to be done for your glory and in your will and under your leading. So, Lord, we pray as we go out of this church this week that you would lead us, that you would guide us into all you have for us and all you desire for us to do. Lord, when the sickness comes, when the the pain and the suffering comes, when the sacrifice comes, Lord, may we remain strong by remaining and abiding in you. Lord, we, we know this is your word. This is, this is your best for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would work your best in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, John was talking about Epaphroditus who almost died in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>